If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support this independent show and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Between this kind of formula of, of heavy-duty export of American agriculture and farm products, as well as a history of food aid and food assistance abroad from the U.S., another thing that sounds great but has some real problems to it, what has happened is the U.S. agriculture system has in many cases flooded foreign markets to the point where they've decimated local agricultural production. That was Christopher D. Cook, an award-winning investigative journalist and author of the acclaimed book Diet for a Dead Planet, Big Business and the Coming Food Crisis. We go over quite a bit about policies in this episode in light of the upcoming elections here in the United States. So if you're curious to hear Christopher's take on it all, you definitely want to stick around. We're going to talk about things like how our subsidies, trade deals, and policies have incentivized the inefficiencies and nonsensical back-and-forth trades in our modern globalized food system, why politics can actually be very unifying when we examine the real issues that the majority of the people are facing today and actually get out there to talk to real people rather than just listening to pundits talk on television and more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I grew up often in the countryside as a kid, and I think that I developed an early passion for nature and the environment. And then in my, I guess, early teens, which would be back way back in the early 1980s, the threat of nuclear war and nuclear devastation was omnipresent. And we really were in the thick of the Cold War back then, especially. And I became very attuned to the crisis around nuclear war and nuclear power. I think that that started my thought process around not only humanity, but the environment and the planet. And as early as high school, I was getting into journalism and I just got more and more 
involved in investigative reporting and analytic thought and writing. My journalism career uh, eventually brought me into writing about a variety of issues that started to be interconnected around food issues, the food industry, labor, workers' rights, worker safety, also the environment, and then also increasingly the climate crisis. So your book, Diet for a Dead Planet, explores how food, our most basic necessity, has become a force behind a staggering array of social, economic, and environmental epidemics. I'm interested in learning from you how the policies and also corporate influence on policy around food have shaped the industry and perhaps directly led us to where we are today. So can you give us an overview of how the subsidies, regulations, and policies around agriculture and food have created the incentives behind what and how our food is grown? Absolutely. And and the history is, is fascinating on this, going back to really the beginnings of American farming and agriculture, but then increasingly agriculture became part of American industrial and economic development and power. Also, its abilities to make war, feed soldiers, and also to feed low-wage workers and, and other workers, of course. But basically, what we started to develop in this country is a, what they call a cheap food system, but it was not really cheap in terms of its real costs to society. But the idea was, let's create as much mass-produced industrial food as possible for a whole host of reasons. You know, it sounds great to have cheap food, but the reality is that this system wreaks havoc on the environment, food safety, and workers, uh, farm workers and food industry workers, and farmers as well. So those are all tremendous societal costs that we actually all pay. Now, how we got here, what you've seen over the decades, really going back to even the early 1900s or 1930s or so on, you started to see more and more concentrated ownership of land in the United States, farmland in particular. At the same time, you also saw the development of more and more efficient farm machinery, which again, sounds like a great thing. And in some ways, it can be a good thing. But these two things came together to create a system that was more and more industrialized, fewer and fewer farmers farming more and more land, So you had ever-diminishing number of actual farmers on the land, more and more concentrated land ownership and control over farming. And then really heightening in the 1950s and 1960s, you see the rise of corporate America throughout the economy, really, especially also in the food and agriculture system. So everything from giant supermarkets, national and regional supermarket chains, to trading companies like Cargill that produce food, but also are really into processing food and trading food, exporting food, and controlling what you have more and more as we go on in the 50s, 60s, and through today is fewer and fewer corporations controlling nearly every aspect of food production, except for the farmers are actually on the ground farming the food, but everything else in terms of where the farmers can sell their crops, control over grain elevators, all of these different things. Policies start to really steer concentrated food production more and more in terms of subsidies that are taxpayer subsidies that are supporting more and more large-scale agriculture because of the way that they're structured. So the subsidy system starts to encourage and promote more and more concentrated production of food, ownership of the basically the means of production of food and the ownership of food. And this system is 
still happening today. At the same time, we have lack of what they call parity pricing, which is basically having a, we used to have a price floor to protect farmers in the marketplace. We no longer have that type of system to really give farmers basically sort of minimum wage for their crops. That used to be a, a mechanism to protect all farmers and also protect us from the other problem we have now, which is massive overproduction of food. Another thing that sounds great to produce tons of food, but the problem is the market gets over flooded and then we have more and more export-oriented agriculture. And again, all these subsidies going to large-scale industrial agriculture. So if I'm not mistaken, most of our subsidies within agriculture are going to help the big guys in agriculture as opposed to helping the small-scale regional family farms. Exactly. And so what we see today, when you look at studies on this analysis of the subsidies that go to farmers, is that the vast majority of the subsidies go to production of just a handful of commodity crops, such as different grains, uh, wheat, soy, corn, cotton is often in the list as well. These commodity crops and grapeseed oil, these different crops that are not really eaten, they're part of the processed food system, really. And they're also centrally part of the meat industry and livestock and production. What you also see is that the vast majority of these subsidy dollars, taxpayer dollars, are going to a small portion of the largest farmers because of the fact that they are growing the most acreage, growing the most crop volume. So they're going to, they're getting most of the subsidies. And so Environmental Working Group has done some great research on this. People can look up some of the data there if they want. I have a lot of data in my book about this, about the history of this subsidy system and how we got where we are today and the incredible inequities in the subsidy system that, again, is going to the largest, wealthiest farmers and also to basically these crops that are essentially about meat production, dairy production, and fuels. So basically going into ethanol production, things like that. We're not even really subsidizing food production, and we're not subsidizing the things that I would argue are utterly essential, quite urgently essential, for food as well as for farmer farmers, our health, and the environment. And that is to subsidize smaller-scale, local and regionally-oriented agriculture that is organic and sustainable with a whole set of practices that have been proven for decades, sometimes centuries to be ecologically smart and sustainable. Also, how much have the subsidies and trade deals as well made by the United States not just influence our own food system, but also the food production, food sovereignty, and farmers' livelihoods in other countries around the world? That's a great question. There's a lot, I, I write a lot about this history in my book as well. There's a combination of factors here. So the U.S. trade system, you know, agriculture and exports have increasingly been since especially the 1970s under Nixon, but you know you could argue before then, but it, but it really became even more part of U.S. trade policy to export about a third of American agriculture products. Between this kind of formula of, of heavy-duty export of American agriculture and farm products, as well as a history of food aid and food assistance abroad from the U.S., another thing that sounds great but has some real problems to it, what has happened is 
that the U.S. agriculture system has in many cases flooded foreign markets and dominated foreign markets to the point where they've decimated local agricultural production and made it impossible for some small farmers in other parts of the world, especially parts of the more like less economically developed world, should we say, to really struggle. And so you see, for instance, the impacts of NAFTA, which is still largely in effect. I mean, we shouldn't, even though there's been some recent talk of changes, these changes don't happen overnight. The NAFTA policies have been incredibly harmful to farmers in Mexico and Central America by really prying open markets in Mexico and Central America to American industrial agriculture. And these are not markets that small organic American farmers are accessing by and large. This is really about Cargill, Monsanto to some extent, and Archer Daniels Midland, some of these other big, big bungee, these other big corporations really flooding these markets um, throughout Mexico and Central America with cheap subsidized American corn and maybe some soy as well, but primarily corn. And what that's done is really wreck life <laughs> and livelihoods for thousands and thousands of farmers in Mexico and Central America whose livelihoods depended on corn. And so many of them went out of business. Many of them ended up fleeing poverty and desperation to come to the United States. And now we've had all this scapegoating and immigrant bashing, even though the United States has played a big role in creating that economic desperation that's caused so many to come north to the United States. There's so many things that are really connected issues. And what's been crazy for me to learn is that we're often exporting the same foods that we're then importing from other countries. So we're exporting meat and dairy and then importing meat and dairy. We're exporting yeah. fruits and vegetables <laughs> and then importing fruits and vegetables. So yeah. it feels like there's so many inefficiencies and things that just don't really make sense within the current food system. And I would guess that all of these are overwhelmingly going to support big agriculture as opposed to really helping out the little guys. Absolutely. You raise an excellent point. I mean, this is another case in which, uh, you know, everybody argues that capitalism is so efficient, and yet there are so many just potent inefficiencies within capitalism. And that's just one of them that you're mentioning is the ways in which international trade and marketing and export create this insane system in which, you know, we might send chickens at one point in their life off to China and China might finish off the feeding and the life of the chicken and then slaughter them and send them back here and then they might be processed more here and or vice versa. There's so many different <laughs> ways in which this happens. And again, you know, to go back for a second to the NAFTA case, one of the ironies that I saw when I was researching my book as well as articles on the meatpacking industry and the and the chicken industry is so many of the Mexican and Central American folks who were in agriculture came up to the United States, started actually working in uh, meat production, meatpacking plants, incredibly exploitive, abusive, punishing jobs that have super high injury rates. And these animals are being fed the corn <laughs> that was helping to put them out of business back in Mexico and Central America. So this is really a deeper underlying reality in our food system and our agriculture system that I really want people to get more aware of in terms of, you know, they can read my book, they can read other articles. Our whole food system is in such deep 
misalignment <laughs> in terms of both the confluence of policy, capitalism, and corporate control over the food system. And what we really need to get back to is, again, the sort of smaller scale, regionally and locally focused agriculture that is organic, have trade, that, but have trade that is balanced and fair and that doesn't flood other countries' markets. You know, another thing we've done with food aid, actually going back to the years of, of JFK and the Cold War, they had a program that I'm just remembering now to, to try to basically befriend countries before Russia would get to them, the Soviet Union back then. And we'd give all this food aid to these countries. Again, it sounds like such a nice thing. But then they would basically flood the market in those countries with American products. And it was basically a way to pry open those markets. And then, and this is all documented in research that, you know, the U.S. corporations would then sort of follow in the footsteps of food aid and start to gain some, some foothold in those markets. So this is an incredibly inefficient and destructive system. And we're seeing even more urgency now with climate change to make a, a, a fundamental shift in our food economy, and in the policies that drive our food system. Well, as part of shining light on our solutions, you've written quite a bit about the Green New Deal. This seems to be a vision that either people are completely on board with or that people immediately brush off. What do you think are some common misconceptions being spread or false talking points that the media has perpetuated to shape public opinion around the Green New Deal? I mean, the largest misconceptions, I think, that are thrown out there First of, of course, you've got climate denial in the president and at least a sizable chunk of the Republican Party outright climate denial, which is utterly insane and incredibly destructive to deny reality and reality that is increasingly destruct, you know, harmful and urgent. So you've got the denial aspect and then you've got, OK, it's happening, but it's not necessarily human cause. So that's another form of denial which is really about defending the fossil fuel industry, defending the corporations that control the fossil fuel industry and other industries, that the meat industry, for instance, uh, which plays a huge role in climate impacts. So it's not just the fossil fuel industry. Then you get into people who, on both in both parties, this is especially a problem in the Democratic Party, however, actually, where people will acknowledge the climate problem, whether they see it as an urgent crisis or just an issue, They'll acknowledge it to some degree, and they'll sort of nod their head like, well, we need to do something, sure. And under President Obama and some of the other sort of more centrist, middle-of-the-road Democrats, we see this kind of all-of-the-above approach, which is this other a very nice-sounding idea. Well, we need everything. We need some renewable. We need some wind. We need some solar. Let's have a little organic agriculture. Sure, why not? And then, you know, fossil fuel and nuclear power can all be part of it. And this is incredibly harmful given the scientific reality that has been documented time and time again by thousands of scientists across the, the world in zillions of peer-reviewed studies and meta-studies. So this is like so ironclad documented proof and truth that we have to deal with this now and that we have, you know, as the IPCC has shown, we have about 10 to 12 years to really address this crisis and prevent irreversible catastrophic harm. And so what we're seeing as well, even among Democrats, is we can't afford to spend that much money addressing the climate crisis. The reality is that we're spending 
more than $350 billion a year right now, at least, on climate-related disasters. It's likely more than that at this point. But, you know, this is the kind of spending that we're already doing in all the societal impacts from fighting these massive out-of-control forest fires to the floods and the hurricanes that get out of control that are beyond just sort of the seasonal aspect, you know, that basically the winds that are churned up by climate change that are exacerbating and intensifying these extreme weather events, causing so much harm and havoc. The costs also go to are harming farmers across the Midwest and other parts of the U.S. Many are going out of business. Many others are suffering. And that becomes something that all of us pay for in our taxpayer dollars. And we want to support farmers. We want to support their survival. But we're not supporting a transition to the kind of farming that needs to be done to both address the climate crisis and also to adapt to the climate crisis. Part of what's been shown in study after study is that the kind of farming that works and that we need is not only organic, but agroecological farming, which really is using some centuries old, but also modernized techniques of agriculture, rotational farming, very serious, intense work in the soil to really revitalize soils. Soil can sound like this obscure or technical thing, but it's really Soil science is vitally important to addressing the climate crisis. Making crops more resilient, having diversity of crop production. So you don't just have one crop that gets wiped out by one seasonal disruption that's influenced by climate change or one pest infestation that might have been exacerbated by climate change. So there are all these things that are utterly necessary that we're not doing (laughs) very much of right now. I think oftentimes people dismiss things like the Green New Deal because at the surface they say it comes from the radical lefties. So it's Mm -hmm. too extreme, it's too out there, and it's at the fringes of something that may not speak to nor help the majority of the people. So we need policies that are more moderate and centrist because that's what can appeal to more people. You wrote an article titled, Centrists Don't Want Party Unity, They Want to Defend the Wealthy. Do you think people who do want real change are mistaken when they think that supporting a moderate is the unifying and practical way to defeat Donald Trump, who's been notorious for his harsh stance against most things that would benefit public health and environmental health. Yeah, I I absolutely think (laughs) what you just said. (laughs) You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, it's like, no, this this drives me nuts. I mean, I just wrote an article that I'm I'm trying to get published right now. Actually, I don't want to scoop myself, but it's really about how some of these policies from the left are actually far more unifying. They get called divisive or unelectable. But the reality is that when you're talking about a Green New Deal that invests in the future survival of the planet and the future survival of communities that whose jobs have been dependent on a rapidly eroding fossil fuel industry, and when you're investing in communities that have historically been marginalized and disinvested from indigenous people's communities to low-income whites and low-income people of color and and immigrant communities, all of these have been economically and politically marginalized. And we're talking about investing in all of these different communities in a way that will strengthen their ability to survive. The irony is that the right likes to 
complain about people on welfare, people on food stamps, and then they don't want to invest in job production <laughs> in areas that are at least stereotyped as places that are more dependent on food stamps, which is not even always true, but often you have areas where there are extremely high rates of poverty and therefore people need food stamps, they need welfare to, just to survive, they need subsidized housing just to survive. It's maddening because the right loves to complain about these paltry band-aid programs that barely keep people afloat. And then they won't spend anything to invest in people's future. And so I actually think that what Senator Sanders is talking about, you know, in particular, maybe some of the other candidates touch on it sometimes as well, is, is that these policies are actually universalizing and they're actually about protecting everybody, whether it's Green New Deal or Medicare for All or other kinds of programs like that. What I find divisive, actually, incredibly divisive, is not only Trump and the GOP, but centrist Democrats who talk about how so-and-so is not electable or mm -hmm. socialism or democratic socialism is not can't be a winning program. You know, they love to sort of red bait that kind of stuff, or they go after the Green New Deal. This is something that I wrote about for In These Times as well, was Speaker Nancy Pelosi and some of the other Democrats, and she's not even considered a centrist, but in many ways she really is on the national level. They blocked the progress of a Green New Deal committee and a Green New Deal itself. And so they really stifled that movement. And the effort was to have the idea that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez started back in the fall of 2016, I believe it was, or 2017, I guess. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Let me correct myself. In the fall of 2018, was when the blue wave came into office, um, the Democrats took back control of the House. She and others started to push a Green New Deal. And the idea was get it through the House, get it ready for a Democratic Senate and a Democratic president so that by 2020, if everything else went according to plan, <laughs> you can have a Green New Deal that's ready to go. When the scientists talk about 10 to 12 years, to radically reduce our emissions and go to a 100% renewable economy by, say, 2030 or 2040 at the latest, but really 2030. What we have to remember is <laughs> right now we're in many respects polluting more. There, there's a lot of studies showing that fossil fuel production has actually increased in recent years. It's not just about passing a law. It's about passing a law immediately so that you can start to implement the law. Because we all know it can take a couple years to really start to implement the law. So then you're really talking about six to eight years to get a transformational law actually on the ground. The dollars flowing into these communities, investing in jobs and job training and job transition in these communities that are economically desperate or that will be. And that also are experiencing more and more of the effects of climate change. And I guess one of the things that is difficult with climate change is that not everybody witnesses or experiences the impacts in the same way or understands that this is what we're being hit, hit by right now. And so the forest fires are one thing, the floods and the hurricanes are another. But there are all these other ways in which, again, like seasonal disruptions, crop losses are massive, both in the U.S. and abroad. Throughout Africa and Latin America, you see massive crop losses in certain regions due to 
not even the extreme weather events as much as seasonal disruptions. So the rains came too late or too early, the frost came too early, different things like that, that cause all kinds of tremendous harm to life and livelihoods. And the U.S. as still one of the top climate-harming nations, along with China and a couple others, you know, we are really at the top of the heap in terms of having to make a radical shift uh, immediately. There's been this vote blue no matter who sentiment going around, and I understand where that comes from, you know, largely the frustration with the current administration and its continued assault on the environment, how it's aggravating social inequity and so many other things. But I personally think that mindset to vote blue no matter who diminishes the important differences we need to make now among the candidates, because that sort of approach makes it out as if it doesn't really matter who wins the primary, so I may not need to get that engaged right now. So long as I vote blue, no matter who in the end. But when so many things we need to get done to really improve people's health, quality of life, safety and the environment hinge upon getting corruption and corporate influence out of politics, I think it is important to distinguish who is really fighting for the people versus being sort of in between, continuing the status quo of compromising between the urgent needs of the people and the financial interests of various already very profitable and powerful industries. Mm -hmm. For you as an investigative journalist, very familiar with the ins and outs of mainstream media and the narratives that are created and perpetuated, what tips can you give us in terms of how to best navigate and filter out the different messages that are pushed upon us to shape our views on politics? That's another great question. I mean, I, I think we are facing, you know, one of the things that I remember when Trump was first elected, I was on a, a live radio show as, we, as the results were pouring in and we were up on the stage at a movie theater in San Francisco and we were all just battered by this news. We were horrified. And, and one of the things I remember saying and thinking and saying was, Watch out for lowered expectations, you know, that like one of the dangers of having somebody as, as monstrously destructive as, as President Trump is that it really diminishes our expectations, lowers our expectations of like what we need, anything would be better. Mm. So, and I think this was something that actually going back to Ray, the Reagan era, Reagan Bush era, and then Bill Clinton came into office and people were just so relieved on the Democratic side, but he was a centrist and he was very pro-corporate as it turned out. And I think that the problem, again, is whether you want kind of a kinder, gentler status quo, to use an old Republican phrase that I think fits with a lot of the Democratic Party platforms now, or if you see the need for a fundamental change. And I think the other thing is, you know, people talk about right and left, and we all get caught up in this idea of right and left. But, you know, if we talk about actual human realities on the ground, people's daily lives, what they're dealing with, what the data and human stories show us is that nearly half the country is living paycheck to paycheck, even in this so-called economic boom. So we have 4% or so official unemployment. It's really said to be closer to 8 or 9% in real unemployment because so many people have given up looking for jobs and are not actively participating in the workforce. But what you're seeing is millions of Americans, tens of millions of Americans really, with no more than $400 in savings. One crisis away from poverty or homelessness, you're seeing massive indebtedness from student loan crisis and from medical debts in particular, and the healthcare costs. 
And then you've got millions of people who still don't have health care coverage, even after the Affordable Care Act. You have all of this to say nothing of corporate profits on the other side, the rise, the continued rise of the billionaire and multimillionaire class taking away more and more of the economic pie. I won't call it their share. <laughs> it's not a fair share at all. And then meanwhile, beyond all that, we have the climate crisis, which really is affecting and going to affect all of us. When you look at those human realities, and then you also look at surveys and polls uh, over time, more and more showing such strong support for these transformative programs, such as Medicare for All, single-payer health care, and a Green New Deal in particular. Surveys showing up to 80% support for a Green New Deal, more than half of Republicans even supporting some form of a Green New Deal. Very high support for Medicare for All. It's gone down a little during the elections because most of the center-right Democrats have been bashing it opportunistically, I would say. So that's really, really unfortunate because they know that, you know, you look at the healthcare system, they know that you can't just have Medicare for all who want a Medicare choice because that changes the equation. It changes the risk pools. It change, they know how this stuff works. And it retains the profit sector, the profits of the of the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. They know that they're protecting these, these profits and these corporate interests and a structure that is totally destructive and unsustainable. Meanwhile, again, beyond left and right, you just have human reality. You've got what's happening on the ground for people, whether they voted for Trump or Bernie Sanders or some middle-of-the-road Democrat. They, their realities are what they are. And I think that part of the trick is, or, or part of the what we all have to do is really have the conversations more and more with people who are in those situations, who we might disagree with somewhat, and try to have some more of these extended conversations where we can talk about and empathize with their reality. Well, they're suffering, whether it's an economic crisis or indebtedness or other things or health issues. They know they need something. They need help. <laughs> mm. And I think that the rhetoric of things like big government has terrified people, but also really misled and misinformed people over the years. I like to push back and say, which government <laughs> are we talking about? Because the reality is that we've had budget-busting, deficit-inflating governments under Republicans, even more than under Democrats. Reagan produced a massive deficit. Trump is now engaged in huge deficit spending. And it's not about demonizing the idea of a deficit. What it's about is recognizing that it's really about choices. It's really about right now where the priority is going is protecting corporate profits, protecting the wealthy, and expanding runaway military spending. I mean, the one thing that we don't talk about nearly enough in these very conversations is the central role of the military and the military-industrial complex in gobbling up more than half of American domestic spending and creating all kinds of environmental harm through the war making that goes on. And, and even if you don't have a war, even if you're just like shipping troops and arsenal overseas, like all the pollution and climate harm that comes out of that, I call it runaway military spending. You know, we could have a defense system. Every country has some form of defense. What we have is an offense system that is constantly invading or threatening to invade or prepared to invade other countries all around the world. And we do it more than any other country on the planet. And this causes 
great environmental harm, but it also chews up massive amounts of resources that mm. easily could be expended on a Green New Deal and Medicare for All. You know, and one thing that came up in one of the debates, the minute anybody talks about Medicare for All or a Green New Deal, the first question that these is how are you going to pay Modern for this? <laughs> mainstream media people have is how are you going to pay for it? They never once ask that when it has to do with the military. So I think we would definitely all benefit from turning off the cable news more and getting out there to actually talk to our neighbors, talk to people in real life. And also, I guess, tune into shows that actually allow people in different communities to speak for themselves rather than hearing about pundits on TV talking about what they think people are thinking, because that's not always very accurate, as, as we just discussed. And finally, to wrap up, combining the topics that we've talked about through policy or personal actions, how do you think we can best support agriculture to be a part of the solution to climate change, our ecological crises, and our public health epidemic? Well, listen, thank you, thank you so much for this conversation, first of all. Um, I think that what you're talking about, we need to plug in more on a direct human one-on-one -on -one basis with communities that are doing the work on the ground, whether it's community-based agriculture, organic, local organic farming, that sort of sounds almost cliche now, but going to your farmer's market is a great first step to get fresh local produce and give all your money directly to the farmer instead of to these big corporate intermediaries. I think the other thing is to have conversations with friends, relatives, neighbors, people in your, in your various communities about having things like a local Green New Deal. So some parts of the country, like San Francisco, has a Green New Deal. I think there's a few other places around the country that have enacted some form of a Green New Deal. And that can mean any number of things. So communities can just can have that conversation themselves and say, well, we want, we want to make sure that our local food markets, government agencies and whatnot, you know, inst and institutions, that they all go to purchasing local and organic food first. You know, they go there first and then they meet the rest of their needs elsewhere if they need to. And that we develop programs that are farmer to farmer and consumer to farmer that, and community to farmer that really support the rise and survival of organic farming and sustainable diversified farming in urban areas as well as in areas near cities. This can include things like zoning laws, regional planning, really getting involved in some level with your local policymakers in whatever way you can to find out, well, does my community have a policy, for instance, that encourages local agriculture, that encourages community gardening and community-based agriculture, or can we get them to do that? So there are a lot of things that can be done on the ground in local communities to expand, and it's already being done, but it really needs to be expanded around the country. You know, And I guess the final thought I would leave you with uh, is that what I have always found promising, you know, even back when I was writing Diet for a Dead Planet and still doing these often very depressing articles about <laughs> the food system or environment and climate crisis, is that so many of the solutions are actually known and out there and proven and already being done. And the issue is about expanding them. It's not always scaling up one farm. It's also about making sure that communities all around the country have marketing systems and policies in place that encourage and promote and support local or diversified agriculture and farming. And these are all things that are good for 
everything from the environment to our health to farmer survival so that, again, our dollars are going directly to farmers and not to the huge corporations that are playing a much more harmful role in our food system. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I like to recommend InTheseTimes.com. It's an excellent magazine. I've been writing for them for years. They, they cover on the ground and community struggles and also provide interesting original analysis. So that's one place that I would recommend people check out. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? You know, we have the ability, the knowledge the resources, especially in the United States, but even around the world, really, we have the resources to change this. We have the knowledge and the policies to change this system of destruction and harm. We're up against huge odds, economic and political odds, but we know what the solutions are and what they can be. So that's a great starting point. And and the other thing I would just add is that there are millions of people around the U.S. and around the world who are committed to this kind of change and are working on it. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I eat a huge salad every day. Most of the ingredients come from are organic and come from my local farmer's market right here in San Francisco. And believe it or not, it's even affordable for an independent journalist, (laughs) if you can believe that. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I'm trying to write whatever I can to contribute to this conversation in terms of knowledge of both the crisis and the solutions and the Green New Deal, which feels like urgent, critical thing that we have to do now, and we have to invest immensely <laughs> right now to get this going. And to be honest, I'm I'm also inspired by the campaign of Bernie Sanders, and his run for president has been energizing and mobilizing millions around the country. It's been inspiring to see that. And I've been looking at his policies a lot, trying to write some articles about what these policies can mean or could mean for people's day-to-day lives. So beyond saying, oh, I like this candidate or I like that candidate or I love the way this person sounds, it's also just like, here are the actual policies that this candidate is proposing and the kinds of changes they're proposing And so it's inspiring to me, especially when you look at young folks, not just with the the Sanders campaign, but also especially around climate change and climate action. The Sunrise Movement and some other movements have really shown that the upcoming uh, new generations of young people 
are really motivated, edu- highly educated and inspired and motivated to make real change. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? In hard times, beauty gives me hope. So going out into nature or, or seeing some beautiful music or artwork or these kinds of things also give me hope. What the natural world naturally has to offer us uh, and sustain us. And this is the same world that feeds us. You know, it's the same world that nourishes us and that we are destroying and that we need to stop destroying and we need to start replenishing. So I would say that having a real relationship and connection to nature and the natural world and understanding that that is really the same natural world that also produces our food system and our water and everything else is, to me, critical, both in terms of having hope and in understanding what we need to do as we move forward to to survive. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Christopher's writing and book, uh, Diet for a Dead Planet, you can head to his website at www.christopherdcook.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at chrsdcook and on Facebook at Christopher D. Cook Writer. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wealth of wisdom with us. What final words of wisdom would you like to share with us as Green Dreamers? I would just say let's keep our eyes on not only the latest news and the crisis and the anecdotes, but really on the fundamental underlying system that has created this havoc and this harm, and that is capitalism and corporate power over our economy and our politics, and that we're not going to really make a sustainable shift until we change those power relations to a system that's politically and economically and ecologically all more equitable and sustainable. So I feel like if that's the final thought I could leave you with, it's that these systems are fundamentally interrelated and interconnected and that the crisis as well as the solutions come through looking at that system itself. 